Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. In my 27 years as a Victorian policewoman, I investigated everything from a stolen bicycle to a stolen life. Policing taught me a lot about human nature, which I explore in my podcasts with a variety of fascinating guests discussing the human side and impact of crime, not only on their lives, but mine as well. My podcasts are not suitable for children and some adults for that matter. If you find yourself affected by my subject matter, please contact Lifeline or any other support, service or person that you feel comfortable with. My guests provide their recollection of an event or incident, sharing their thoughts and their emotions, but it's theirs and not everyone will agree with them. I understand that and I hope you do too. Thank you. Yeah, I feel like it's important to be looking at the data and the evidence when you're looking at how to make reforms in this space because they do paint a very, very vivid picture. So welcome back to part two of my chat with uh, the lovely Olivia Nichols. Hope you've had a good week. So just to bring you up to speed, uh, if you didn't listen to last week, I think you should go back and have a listen, but if you didn't, uh, 25-year-old Liv was a parliamentary advisor for Darren Hinch's Justice Party. Liv's passion lies in areas including family violence, stalking, sexual offending including childhood sexual abuse, liquor control, policing and voluntary assisted dying. She volunteers with the Power in You project in Geelong, which we'll chat about shortly. And being a stats woman, the stats she shares about the success of this project is amazing. Uh, she's a board member of Barwon Community Legal Service. She's an ambassador for Dying with Dignity uh, and she coordinates a school debating competition for the Debaters Association of Victoria. Liv's a fierce advocate for helping children who've witnessed or been exposed to family violence and, again, some of her stats will frighten you. And if they don't frighten you, they'll certainly concern you. Uh, She's also passionate about foster carers and how advantageous they are to vulnerable and damaged children. She really is incredibly engaging and easy to listen to. So have a good week. Enjoy uh, Live Part 2 and we'll chat next week. Your role, uh, one of your (laughs) many roles, uh, uh, as a volunteer with the Power and You Project in Geelong, that's exposed you, it's really interesting, I think, this, that it's exposed you to the other side of crime, the perpetrators, which, 
you did say, which you, you found quite intriguing and fascinating. Like it's almost like a switch has been flicked within you. Would mm. that be a fair description? Definitely. And that is not to um, take away any of the work that I still do for victim survivors yeah. and the passion I've got for them. But when I was introduced to the Power in You project and the founder, Kane Nuttall, who had a um, a meth addiction for over 10 years, um, I really quickly learned that in order to help victim survivors or essentially to make sure that there are no more um, or certainly less, we someone has to be helping the perpetrators. Um, and Kane had been there, done that, and he was uh, someone that perpetrators um, or, you know, people that just had addiction, they might not have committed uh, crime necessarily, but were on a, you know, pretty bad path. He was someone that they could trust and um, just the incredible results that his program has, um, you know, been able to accomplish over the past six and a half years. I I just, I love it. And at the start, it was maybe a bit uncomfortable because I, I almost, I almost felt like I was cheating on the work that I had been doing, yeah, but I, yeah. I now a see it as con- expanding. A bit of a conflict, <laughs> a bit of a yeah. conflict sort of. Yeah, yeah. Definitely, mm. yeah. Um, but they, the difference between their program and any other program in Victoria is their, um, their use of lived experience in their program. So almost half their staff are people with mental health addiction or justice experience. Um, they all have minimum qualifications and um, they've got, you know, qualified um, psychologists and things on site as well. But this ability to be able to relate to someone that's been in that position before and they don't give up on people, um, mm. I just I just love the idea that if someone's got an addiction, they can walk in off the street and be welcomed with open arms. You can't get that anywhere else in the state. There's, you know, two-week wait, four-week wait, come back in five days and we'll see if we can fit you in. It is just here's the free programs, come in as long as you're not, you know, substantially substance affected and we will help you. And I feel like um, I feel like you can do both in the sense that I can – be an ally to victim survivors and be working with them and creating reform as well as creating reform in the perpetrator space and um, be working towards, you know, more funding for programs like The Power in You where they are helping people and they are making the community safer. Mm. And you and I have discussed uh, when we met the other week, we did, I was telling you that uh, a, a number of um, presentations that I give, I talk about what we have to do or what we need to do with perpetrators mm. because that's where the uh, the offending starts. Yeah. And, and I do say quite a lot that people might say, who, um, um, who cares about the perpetrators? Mm. But we have to care about the perpetrators because if we don't, they will continue to commit crimes. They will, which means we are going to continue to have victims of crime. I'm not saying that it's the the fixer of everything, but we've got to do something mm. to 
help the victims. And I think the way we do that is to deal with the perpetrators and find out what their issues are and try and help them, as in what the Power in You project in Geelong is doing. It, yeah. You've given some um, pretty encouraging statistics uh, about the recidivism rate with those who attended the Power in You project program uh, compared to the Victorian stra- uh, state average, which I reckon the listeners might be pretty encouraged by. Can you tell us about some of those statistics? Yeah, so when I first met Kane, um, I pretty much said, look, how can I how can I help you? And, and he... he's incredible he's got a billion things in his mind always running and he's always looking to the next thing um and he said look we'd love to get into uh, the prisons and I said well from my policy experience obviously we've got this massive problem with remandees so people who um are in prison but haven't been sentenced yet for most of them they'll get to court for a hearing and then they'll be sentenced to time served which essentially means the prison sentence that they've already done up till that date and then they'll get let out with you know a bag over their shoulder and a little bit of money in Centrelink and not much else certainly for a lot of them no roof over their head um so I put together a um a remand pitch for them but I said okay and I I I need to be able to sell your program like I need to be able to tell the government that your program works and he said, oh, okay. I said, well, what stats can you give me? I need hard numbers. <laughs> I'm a numbers girl. And um, <laughs> he said, oh, we'll get you all the numbers on the people we've had go through our program to date that have been justice clients, so people affected by the justice system either in prison or CCOs. And um, I just could not believe it. So over my four years as an advisor, I'd been quoting, you know, all these state average statistics around recidivism, which – for those who don't know, um, 44% of people who uh, are incarcerated will end up back in prison within two years and that goes up to like 55 plus percent within five years. Um, so it's almost a revolving door. And then Kane's stats were something between 20 and 25%. Um, and what was really promising to me was um, even more than that, if they had gone back to prison after engaging with the program, they had re-engaged with the power in you. Um, and to me, that showed these stats are probably likely to improve and get better. Um, mm. But the costs, like anyone that says, and this was part of, you know, the pitch we haven't got yet, but if anyone from the state government is listening, give me a call. I'd love to chat about some funding for this program. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think we put in a submission. Let's say I think it was about 680 grand for two years, which sounds like quite a lot for a, you know, a local program. But when you compare that to $133,000 a year it costs to keep someone in prison, I literally mm, said to wrong. Kane, mm. you would need to keep six guys or women out of prison for this program to have a cost to benefit. And his response was something like, bloody oath, we can do that. That is so, yeah, that is yeah. absolutely achievable. Um, so I just think if we invest in local solutions like this, you know, we are going to save the state money and safety. Um, and one other thing I'd say about the importance of this program is, of our prison population come from six postcodes. Um, That was something that was pushed 
quite a lot by the late Professor Joe Grafham, who passed away a few months ago, who was integral to um, growing the Power in You project. And given that statistic, we know that in order to get our prison population down, we can kind of concentrate our efforts into a few areas. You know, it's not going to solve the whole problem, but it will certainly help it. And Geelong boasts, if you like, a few of those postcodes. And I feel like that is one of the um, really important drivers of funding for the Power New Project, like why we need more money invested into it, because it is targeting an area that is so prolific for people ending up in prison that we need solutions-based interventions. And this is absolutely one of them. Mm. Gee, I, I see what you mean about being able to identify postcodes so that you can then concentrate your efforts on those particular postcodes. I mean, not um, disregarding other postcodes, but when you've got such a large number, a large percentage from a certain area, Mm. it it makes it easier to, um, um, I don't know, point to where the people need to be, I don't know, educated I, I don't know yeah but oh definitely yeah. and if people think that you know um this isn't related to other um social factors like employment and income and um you know drug use and alcohol like they're kidding themselves because if you look at Corio and Lane um and Whittington which are three of the highest certainly all sit above state average in a number of different crimes, um, including intimate partner violence, then you'll see that they all correlate. There's higher unemployment. Their um, inc- average income is way below the state average. So, um, yeah, I feel like it's important to be looking at the data and the evidence when you're looking at how to make reforms in this space because they do paint a very, very vivid picture. Hey, Liv, why would... You just uh, said then Whittington, Carrio and Norlane. What is it about, let's say, those three um, areas that why have they got such a, a, a big representation? Well, there's someone the out there listening building. who's probably a lot more qualified to answer that than I am, but um, definitely the closure of a lot of the manufacturing out in Geelong, so um, when all the car manufacturing stopped, um, you know, obviously our wages became really high. So there was a huge spike in unemployment and um, I think a lot of poverty uh, in those areas as well. So things like, you know, median house prices, um, I feel like over a number of decades it's only gotten worse. Um, And, yeah, I I think there's a number of factors that feed into that. Um, But as I was saying, like, you know, poverty will feed into this um, issue of crime quite heavily. You know, we discussed uh, the obvious correlation uh, between drugs, alcohol and domestic and family violence and and the fact that you gave a statistic. Mm. You are a stats girl, aren't you? You did (laughs) give us the statistic of 77.2% of children who witness domestic and family violence go on to be involved in the justice system within five years. That is 
a really, really concerning and frightening statistic. Mm. Can you can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so that was from the ABS. Um, if I recall, I think that came out in 2021 and it got no media coverage. Um, I just can't God, believe it. How could it, it not? <laughs> it just, mm. to me, mm. that says so much that we need to know about family violence, which, you know, it's, it's um, not to downplay, but it's been a buzzword since the Royal Commission into family violence. You know, mm. there's been mm. there's been literally billions of dollars injected into uh, these reforms and no one is talking about the impact of family violence on children. Well, I shouldn't say no one, but certainly not from a, um, you know, it's not right on the government's agenda, I don't feel at the moment. There are some bodies like Respect Vic and others doing um, a lot of work in trying to um, recognise vic- ch- children as victims in their own right, which I completely support. But no one is talking about um, this really scary correlation between the child witnessing a police-reported family violence incident and then that child being involved with the justice system, like within five years. So they're most likely still a juvenile when that offending is happening. Mm. And that 77% from recollection actually goes up to something like 80% the younger the child is. So it kind of paints this picture that if you are a young child experiencing family violence, you're more likely to go on to offend. Um, And that really, so that was discovered um, when we were pushing a policy about family violence in the presence of a child. So we wanted to create a new offence with with that um, element. So the family violence needed to be in the presence of a child. And it wasn't intended to increase jail sentences, but what we wanted to do was try and get our courts to recognise the impact of family violence on kids. And, you know, I trawled through court documents um, for many years trying to understand how, you know, our courts were dealing with a lot of these incidents and spoke to magistrates because obviously one of the big problems we faced was a lot of these incidents are heard in magistrates' courts and magistrates' courts don't record their reasons for their decisions because they're such a high-volume court. So kind of needed to get a bit creative. But one thing I found was these magistrates were not talking about the kids because they weren't victims. The, you know, partner was the victim, but in like I think I read maybe one article from Colac where a magistrate said, you know, Joe Blow, do you understand the impact that this had on your child who was hiding in their room? That should be, you know, that should be the highlight of any case where there are children present. Mm. Yeah, gee. I mean, it's sort of, I don't know where to start with it because it is just such a huge problem. Mm. with with kids um, and learned behaviour, isn't it? Like mm. what they see and just how it affects them. But you're right, the courts don't seem to take into consideration the effect that it has on the kids. And um, yeah. like that, it, that is a huge statistic that yeah. I think 
anybody, everybody listening should be concerned about. And let's just say that again, that 77.2% of children who witness domestic and family violence go on to be involved in the justice system within five years. Mm. One, I mean, you know, it's it's very depressing, that stat, but one positive thing we did um, sort of investigate or, you know, try and push was an expansion of the Caring Dads program. So it's only offered through oh, one or two service providers in Victoria and only in a, you know, a few areas. Um, but part of, you know, bringing in what we wanted was this new offence um, would be if you were charged and convicted with this offence, you would have to go through the Caring Dads program. Um, and through speaking with some of the service providers, we found that um, kids were often one of the motivating factors of fathers changing their behaviour. Um, and that to me was quite promising. I mean, it's a bit more expensive than traditional uh, men's behaviour change programs, but I think if it's more effective, it's like it's worth the money. So, um, you know, we didn't get additional funding for that, um, but I, I would cross my fingers that in the next few years we would we'll see you know some better results, and then hopefully that means more funding. So, yeah, fingers mm-hmm. crossed. You know, we've. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about conflict within the the family home, and because we've both been exposed to the difficulties that many vulnerable families face in dealing with conflict. In fact, uh, they don't deal with it <laughs> um, mm. at all. Because, um, as you rightly pointed out, that they don't know how to deal with it. You had a yeah. great perspective on this, which I'd love you to share with the listeners. Um, it was a, a story you told about Joe Frost, the super nanny, and why that could just work. And I'd never heard of her because I don't have a tally, and apparently it's on the tally. And I know this is pie in the sky stuff, but we do need to do something. So, can you tell us a bit about Joe Frost and what um, uh, she does that might just be worth a try? Yeah, it, it is not a revolutionary concept by any stretch. Um, so Tanya Maxwell, one of our um, former MPs, she had an intern do a report on the super nanny model. And Tanya, if you look up Hansard, you'll find her mention early intervention and primary prevention about a billion times, um, kind of became her catch cry. But I loved it because it focused on not waiting until things get to crisis point to intervene and make a difference. Um, So as we know, a lot of kids in um, out-of-home care, even kids that are, say, born with an addiction um, to substance because of their, um, you know, mother's use while pregnant or environmental factors when they're born, we know that, you know, their trajectory is not great. And so intervening back then before the child goes on to develop issues and um, connection with the justice system is so important. And so we sort of came up with this or investigated this idea of a super nanny. And for those who don't know, Joe Frost is that UK lady says, get in the naughty corner. <laughs> and um, <laughs> she's quite a, if I can say she's a bit of a hard ass, but yeah, yeah. her... Um, approach is teaching the parent so you're not she's not in the home to educate the child necessarily she's there to teach the parent how to parent 
Um, and this seems so straightforward, but I don't think people understand yeah. that a lot of people in the justice system were never taught to parent properly. They they have never cooked a meal for their children. They don't give them blankets to sleep on. They don't teach them how to clean up. Um, these are things that we take for granted every day. You know, they'll they'll send their children to school with a uniform that hasn't been washed in months. They don't know how to use deodorant. They don't brush their teeth. These are things that we can teach a parent to implement to their child. And so the super nanny model is quite basically having someone live in with the parent and teach them how to parent. Um, this creates a safe environment for the child, um, but it's also a long-term strategy. So we have things that and programs that kind of go to this model. So we have um, maternal child health care nurses that go into um, the home uh, postnatally you know, after a woman gives birth, they might go in at zero weeks, two weeks, four weeks, eight weeks. Um, it's dramatically underfunded, but it could work just expanding that program. So, Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Um, instead of going for a one-hour appointment, spending, you know, a few hours a week or a day and an overnight, you know, once a month, um, the investment that you make on something like this would pay off tenfold. Um, because teaching a parent how to look after their child, how to get them to sleep properly, um, how to get them to 
be, you know, nutritious has benefits that you wouldn't even think of in terms of, um, you know, if they're healthier, they're not engaging the health system as much. If they, um, you know, learn how to deal with conflict better, they're less likely to resort to violence. Um, you know, things like not using substances or so many benefits. And I just, um, the, the intern report's quite interesting. It's at the Parliamentary Library if anyone wants to have a read. Um, <laughs> but really interesting model. And again, early intervention is something that um, if you look at all the evaluations, just pays for itself. It's, uh, you're right, you know, you do take these things for granted, like just something as, as basic as, I don't know, let's say cleaning your teeth, brushing your hair. I don't know, I always had to make my bed before, you know, I went to school, um, uh, learning just the basics of cooking. Like you just mm. can't imagine that somebody wouldn't, teach their kids that but you're right you just take it for granted it's hard it's hard to get my head around I'm sure it is for a lot of people yeah as you say we take it for granted yeah and you know even things like a kid goes to school with no deodorant no brush teeth smelly uniform they get stigmatized and shamed by the children they feel socially mm. isolated then mm. they start disengaging with school then they drop out of school um, these sort of small things that we think about and, yeah, as we've said, take for granted can actually be the difference between a child surviving or thriving, um, especially when they're young. So I, yeah, I, I think that we should be trialling something like this. I mean, clearly there's caveats around safety for oh, said yeah. super yeah, nanny, yeah, of course. but um, yeah, yeah. I think it's a really, you know, sleep school shouldn't just be for you know, rich, well, not rich, but well-off mums who can access it. I feel like the people that need sleep school the most are the people that can't deal well with conflict, um, you know, won't deal well with a lack of sleep, things like that. So, yeah, these are just some of the um, some of the reforms that I think we need to make, but, you know, it all comes down to money. <laughs> yeah, it does. But, you know, there's that argument, you know, they can spend – I don't know, billions on, I don't know, Commonwealth Games. Well, not, but... Not I, Commonwealth I Games. <laughs> no, that's right. I don't want to get political, but I'm just saying they can find money. People seem to be, or the government seems to be able to find money to do all sorts of things. But when it comes to something as, I would think, as basic as this, just to... Help with victims of crime, help perpetrators. Uh, it's a uh, it's a no brainer to me. But maybe I'm just you know a bit. Hmm, I don't know. Um, we did also talk, didn't we, about uh, kids being um, taken off their families and put into residential care. And you said something which r resonated with me with the dealings that I've had with uh, kids in residential care. I find it. Very, very confronting. I find it unbelievably sad and unimaginable to me that, um, you know, the kids in these houses have been taken off their, their – taken away from their families, which I often think, you know, surely the kids start to think 
they're the one with the problem. Like the government takes the the kids off the families because the families aren't looking after them properly. Surely the kid at some point is going to think I've done something wrong. But but you you what you did say was that it's almost a hundred percent certain any kid that gets put into residential care is pretty much a hundred hundred percent certainty that they'll be exposed to crime and very likely go down that path themselves. Oh, yeah, God. that is um, not a stat from anywhere reputable, just by the way. That was just something that, yeah, I suppose is more yeah, of an opinion. It was just but, a comp, um, yeah. yeah. Okay. But, but there are, let's say, um, a large proportion of yes. kids that are taken away from home and put into residential care will uh, very likely go down the path of, um, you know, crime themselves. Um, yeah, and, and that's a similar case with all types of out-of-home care. Um, Resi is the worst, but in terms of, you know, our child like child outcomes. But um, for those who don't know, residential care is a type of out-of-home care where a child's taken away from um, their parents or carer um, due to, you know, in, in most cases it's drug use or family violence or a lack of safety mm. for that child. And then they go into a home that is staffed by um, DFFH or other um, organisational staff um, and the outcomes are really bad. So the one thing we actually were working on in Parliament, um, so when Stu was in Socket, something he was tasked with quite regularly was investigating child sexual abuse of children who were in residential care homes. So what was happening was um, men knew or yeah, people knew of the residential care home, um, often would meet some of the kids online or through Snapchat or whatnot, and they would go to the facility, pick up the child, and then exchange, um, I don't even want to say sex because their children would ex- exploit them essentially um, in exchange for drugs. Um, and it was often really hard to investigate things like this because the complainant might not want to make a complaint. They might not trust police. Um, they might think that they, you know, are in love with this man who's twice their age. Um, there's so many factors at play, but it kind of got us investigating a bit more about the out-of-home care system. And again, coming back to early intervention, how can we reform or improve this system to make kids safer? Um, and there are all types of out-of-home care um, where the odds are against the child, um, you know, they've been taken away from their parents and in kinship care, for example, they're given to parents or other kin. Um, and in foster care, they, they're in the care of people in the community who have put their hand up and said, I want to help out this child. Um, there are there is a huge need for more foster carers. Um, I don't know when this podcast will be released, but um, it's almost foster carers week. So if anyone has ever considered that, definitely look into it because one way we can improve um, community safety, but more um, directly the safety and um, you know the, the life of that child is through having a caring, loving home. Um, if we can't find foster carers, if there are no kin that, you know, tick the boxes, so they need to be kin who, um, 
well, firstly, are happy to take the child but also don't have certain criminal offences and checks, then they go into residential care. And that's where we find a lot of problems around um, children's behaviour. If children leave residential care, the police get called. Um, These are not the ways that these children should be dealt with. Um, But we're kind of left with no choice and we don't have a loving home for the child. Um, So I think when we're talking about criminal justice, one way that we ended up talking about out-of-home care is because of these really upsetting links between out-of-home care and crime, Um, which, yeah, I can send you some and you can put them in the show notes or... um, Yeah, I just think it's really important that people recognise they're not bad kids. They've had a really, really rough start to life um, and it's, you know, easy to judge and kind of have a us and them approach, but we're all kind of part of the solution. Yeah, yeah, we are. And you're right, like foster care, foster carers are, Oh, they're they're just so important mm. in um in a kid's life. But just going back, you write about um adults that uh, prey on young children mm. uh, for you know sexual gratification or whatever. I just think they are very good at identifying vulnerable children, and of course, those kids that are in residential care, of course, they're going to. Uh, really like or love somebody that showers them with attention, that buys yeah. them things, you know, like it's not really hard to get a kid's um, confidence, is it, like particularly those kids in residential care. They they are just oh, aching for somebody to love them, you know. It's, yeah. um, oh, it's, a, it's sad. I, I had a lot of trouble. Um, dealing with going into residential care places. I felt for everybody in there, even the workers, you know, I just thought, God, what a what a tough job. Oh. Yeah, and imagine living somewhere with people you've never met, um, other kids you've never met, where, you know, there there are no rules and heaps of rules in other respects. And um, you know, they're not people that create um connection with you and that's no disrespect to residential care workers it's a bloody tough job and I've spoken to many people who have worked in those settings but um, you know there's really high staff turnover and attrition and that's that's a decision for that worker but it also impacts that child you know someone new in the house looking after me Um, yeah it's it's just not a model you know, I, I just hope one day that we have enough resources and options that we don't need residential care anymore. Um, yeah, fingers crossed, but yeah, maybe that's a pie in the sky <laughs> sort of thought. But yeah, yeah. look, um, it probably is, but it's um, God, if you if you thought too much about you know, what we've seen and what you've learned about residential care, um, you need to have something to hang on to like pie in the sky stuff because otherwise, um, it you know, it could do your head in. 
Yeah, and like if the government are happy to, you know, release a, a net, um, not net zero, a towards zero campaign for us driving on the road and, you know, to make sure that there's no deaths on the road, then I just feel like we need to have some sort of, you know, extremely ambitious strategy to make sure that we don't have any kids in mm. places like residential care. Where is the strategy? Well, there isn't one. Um so yeah, finger, yeah. I just I hope that we can make some healthy reform in that space. But but then you know what do you do with kids that are exposed in their family home to you know terrible violence, drug use, or whatever? I understand why government agencies, in a way, um, remove them. Mm. because it is damaging them terribly. But sometimes I wonder what's worse. Yeah, it's kind of like the lesser evil, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, I did refer to this at the start a little bit, but I just want to ask you a bit about you and Stuart. Um, You spent a year working with Premier Andrews in seeking justice for the victims of the Morris Primary School case before Stuart lost his seat. I just can't imagine the frustration at working on something so horrendous and disturbing for so long and with such intensity, and I imagine probably almost feeling responsible in a way for it then when Stuart loses his seat, that it all just goes away. Um, that And that would not just happen with Bo Morris, would it? It, it would happen a lot where you get your teeth into something and mm. then he loses his seat and it's all. So how do you deal with that? Um, I w- so in my case I was um, always leaving after the election. So I was going to sort of help with hand, say around for handover and, you know, make sure that whoever replaced me would know exactly what we wanted to achieve and who to speak to about it. But, um, you know, it wasn't meant to be. But I did say in the Bo Morris case that I didn't need to be, you know, I didn't need to have the title of parliamentary advisor to help them with the advocacy. Um, so I told Glenn and Rick and Tim and Rod and Karen and everyone, I will be here and I will help you. Um, I still have some phone numbers in my phone, so I will use them as much as I can to try and, Um, you know, get this moving. And then once we had the meeting between the survivors and the Premier, um, you know, which took a long time to happen, Mm. but once that meeting was scheduled and executed, it was really um, credit to the Premier there that it was pretty smooth sailing after that in terms of, you know, he was open, he wanted to make change, he, he was listening to what they were saying genuinely um, it, it saddens me that it took so long to get that happening. You know, I was telling anyone in the government that would listen what happened at this school and why we needed acknowledgement and investigation. And unfortunately, it, yeah, it wasn't taken very seriously. And in some ways, I felt like the can was being kicked down the road until um, I just kind of let it go. But that's not who I am. <laughs> Glenn says I'm a dog with a bone. Mm. And, you know, mm. I'm proud of that. Because mm. too many people do just kind of, you know, go, oh, no one's listening. Well, I tried, but oh, I don't know. For me, this was just way too important to, to let it go. 
Um, and, you know, it's paying off now because their voices are being heard. And as you say, situations like this need to be beyond politics. Um, it's a pity that it's the system that we have, that things become political. But um, in terms of the other issues that we were working on, um, I've stayed in touch with a few stakeholders uh, and, you know, the, the passion for reform, as you can probably tell from our conversation today, it hasn't waned. I'm still pretty passionate and maybe yeah, maybe I'll, I'll be I'll back in that. politics too. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, you are right in a sense, like a lot of it just, you know, all my files get deleted at the end of the day. So all that sort of research and all that knowledge gets lost beside besides the little bits that are floating around in my head. So that is sad. Um, but I think, you know, there's a lot on hand side, a lot on the public record that goes to um, some of the things that we were fighting for. And, you know, we can only hope that um, people, you know, vote with their feet and in future elections they vote the people that align with their policy values and then that means that we get good policy created. So, um, yeah, that's a bit of a, a takeaway message that, if there's something that you're fighting for, um, go and talk to someone about it, someone who you pay for through your tax. And if your voice isn't heard, vote with your feet. Have you ever thought about becoming an MP? I'm serious. <laughs> no, I'm ser- I am. I'm serious. Oh, I'm- you are. You just. You're very passionate. You know the right people you you've been in you know in with Stuart and you've seen like have you ever considered it oh I, I'm sure I've considered it at points along the way um but I don't think I would I think I'm happy being in the background doing you know all of the bits and pieces that I'm doing I mean I, I know I would love something like that I just don't think um mm. you know it's, it's a big commitment people talk a lot about MP salaries and you know, they're lazy and, you know, I saw my fair share of lazy MPs. Um, There is such a broad um, school of types of MPs in the sense that if you're in a marginal seat, so which means a seat where um, you don't hold it by a big margin, those MPs are generally more hardworking. In the Legislative Council where the votes kind of happen in a, it's a different voting system or a different voting calculation than in the lower house. Um, that's where you'll find maybe a few more MPs that are a bit comfortable. Um, but I, through that experience, have sort of seen the, the MP that I would want to be if I did that. Um, but it is really hard work and they are away from their families for, especially the ones in regional Vic, for weeks at a time. Um, mm. and it's one of the very few jobs that exist where every day you're actually fighting to keep your job. Um, mm. Mm. you know, if you don't meet with constituents and if you don't, um, raise issues and you don't get media coverage and all those sorts of things, then people won't know who you are and they won't vote for you and four years is up and you're out. Um, so yeah, I would, um, I think I would love to do that, but I just don't, I don't think I will. I'm happy to be mm. in the background and, yeah, supporting someone to make a difference. You you just uh, said then about 
you know, you, you do get some lazy MPs. It's like everything, mm. you know, you have good and bad in everything. But <laughs> yeah. just thinking of myself now, like with all the work that Stuart did, with all the um, all the justice uh, subject matter that he spoke about and was so passionate about, and then four years and he's not voted back in, you know. it's just seems he is a really passionate person about justice and I just a shame. Anyway, look, mm. uh, in closing, Liv, um, thank you for all that you've done for for justice in our community. But I suppose particularly the victims, say, of um, Beaumaris uh, Primary School and just your passion for the safety of our kids. Uh, thank God there's people like you in this world, Liv, and, um, yeah, just thanks for everything you do and you're doing and particularly the work that you're doing at um, Power in New Project in Geelong. Yeah. I didn't, I, I need to say, like, I didn't go into that job, um, you know, five years ago thinking um, I knew everything about these subject matters and these policies um, and I certainly still don't now, but I think when you meet the humans behind those stories, they affect you in ways that you never knew were possible. And yeah. I think that's when we create good policy and good reform is when um, we meet people at the coalface of it and we're willing to listen. And I know that in the four years I was there, you know, student get back in and, you know, I was having some health issues, so I was always going to leave. But I think I one of the biggest things I learned was, you know, we have two ears and one mouth and sometimes it's much better to listen and you grow more when you listen. So um, as someone who loves to talk, as people will definitely be able to tell after listening to this podcast, I, um, <laughs> I did learn to listen much more. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering if how we would ever stop this conversation, but I'm going to call it. I'm going to call it now. But no, look, thanks, Liv, and I, I mean what I say. Thank you for everything that you've done. Uh, I'm sure that there's a lot you've done that um, you don't realise. Uh, you know how much you've helped people. But anyway, thanks for your time, and um, good luck with everything, Liv. Live for MP, I reckon. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Liv. Oh, no worries. Thank you. As you've probably noticed, we've moved to a new platform called ACAST. I think that's... <laughs> the right expression, I've got no idea. And my previous reviews haven't transferred over. I need reviews. <laughs> Could you do me a favour and put up a review? And thank you so much for your support and patronage. With your help, I can give you that little bit extra. Thanks. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. 
Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 